buenos días. Um, this is my colleague, Dr. Paula Suarez. My name is Javier Cajigas. Uh, welcome to our workshop on providing culturally and linguistically responsive assessments for Latino, Latina, Latinx patients. Um, we are both uh, faculty here at UCLA in the Department of Psychiatry, uh, bilingual neuropsychologists. Um, we're uh, members of the Hispanic Neuropsychiatric Center of Excellence, which is a new center of excellence here at UCLA that started in July. And um, we also co-direct our cultural uh, neuropsychology program. And so we're going to be sharing um, our perspective on a few of these things. Um, these are our learning objectives. Uh, so to, to learn and understand uh, various cultural competency models through the lens of cultural humility and the emerging structural competency or competence framework to uh, demonstrate raised awareness and knowledge of race, ethnicity, linguistic, and socio-historical issues, as well as health disparities relevant to neuropsychological practice, to recognize how sociocultural variables can impact uh, neuropsych neuropsychological test performance, and how to integrate these factors into evidence-based assessment with a focus on interpretation. And uh, finally, to apply concrete strategies for increasing the cultural competency of your own practice through developing a culturally responsive approach, not uh, culturally sensitive, but responsive approach to the clinical interview evaluation, report writing, and provision of feedback to patients and families. We want this to be open and interactive. So if, as, as, if you have comments or questions along the way or something isn't clear, please feel free just to stop us and we're totally open. We want to have a fluid uh, next, what, three hours. So. And just as a quick disclaimer, I have a patient in the clinic, and so if I'm checking my phone, it's because I have my student texting me. If any, I ask her to text me if anything comes up, and then she'll text you the second half. So. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Hopefully, but I don't want to be seem disrespectful. I'm not on social media. I don't have social media, so anyway. <laughs> so we figured we'd start um, by just giving an overview of uh, some of the things that we're going to be talking about ideas about cultural competency, cultural humility, and structural competency, um, the difference between those three different models um, and how they build upon each other and the, the, the impact and import that that has for working with Latinos through that lens. We're going to talk about what is neuropsychology. We're both neuropsychologists. That's our area of specialization. Um, we, uh, as we said, are co-directing the cultural neuropsychology program here at UCLA, which we founded in 2010, and uh, they, they joke with us all the time that we're unicorns because we're bilingual neuropsychologists who can actually <laughs> assess people in Espanol um, and also uh, English-Spanish bilinguals. So we'll talk about why that's important as, as well. Um, and in doing so, we'll talk about the population that we serve and the unique sort of challenges, the burden and privilege of working with Latinos in, in neuropsychology and uh, the assessment process in particular, strategies, frames of reference for how to uh, have a, a working framework that allows you to, to actually serve the, the, the unique needs of the population. Then we'll deal with specific cultural considerations uh, with regard to interviews, testing or assessment practices, interpretation of results, and incorporation of providing feedback for, for families. Um, how do you take neuropsychology and make it accessible 
to uh, patients and families. And then, well, the, the, the th part that I always get excited about are the real life examples. So case studies, um, how these variables actually present and look in practice. Um, and it really comes to life that way. So um, that's our overview um, of, of what we're going to be covering. But we're going to start with a little bit of uh, epidemiology, <laughs> yes? So this is all 2000, uh, uh, this is uh, a compilation of, of um, statistics that was put together in uh, the 2010 census. So as we all know, we're coming up on the 2020 census. God help us all. Um, but, uh, but, but this is why this is important, right? The, the transparent and accurate collection of numbers. So this is the percent of the population in 1980 that identified as Hispanic or Latino within the United States. And you'll see over here, um, this is the, the heat map. So the darker the blue, the higher the proportion or, or percentage of Latinos. So I'm going to take you through a few uh, of these slides. This is 1980. This is 1990, 10 years later. So 80, 90, 2000. Things were moving so quickly that they did an update in 2006, right? So just, just look at the change there, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2006, and then 2015. Sorry, 2010 with the, with the census, sorry. Um, there's a change. There's a couple changes. One is we switched from a nice royal blue to a bit more of a purple which is a blending of blue and red, which may have political implications that I won't comment on. <laughs> but, but perhaps what's more important, when I first saw that, I was like, what happened to all the Latinos? Until I looked at the scale. And so before it was 25 to 100 was the darkest color. And then they switched it to 50% or more. So we're seeing a very rapid uh, demographic change and spread of Latinos throughout the United States for various different reasons, um, it, it no longer tied to uh, immigration, but actually to birth rate. Um, and, and these numbers are even more uh, dramatic when we look at, uh, at, at the birth rate of kids, uh, Latino children within the United States. So they say a picture's worth a thousand words. It's a little bit more than a thousand, I think. Um, but that's the way things looked in our last census. We'll see what they look like coming up in 2020. Um, this is another way of depicting the change from 1950 with projections to 2050, again, of the Hispanic or Latino population. Um, so you can see right about where, right around here, right? So there's a bit of an inflection point where things really, really take off. Um, and so uh, uh, you can see that we're in the middle of something pretty unique uh, historically within the United States. Um, this is the percent of distribution of the Hispanic population by state as of that 2010 census. And you can see here we are, California, right? The, the lion's share uh, with Texas following, then Florida, New York, other states, and all other states here other than the ones listed, about a quarter of, of, of the total um, Hispanic population. I'm going to use Hispanic and Latino interchangeably. Um, but uh, for the sake of being academic, since we're, we're housing it at the university, um, Hispanic uh, refers more to the language or use of the language, whereas Latino is more of a geographic uh, descriptor from Latin America or Latino America. 
There are other terms like Chicano. We have a Chicano studies. There's all these different terms, and they all have nuanced differences in definitions. Me Mexican would be more specific. I'm fine with that, but my Colombian counterpart over here might be like, don't let me in with los mexicanos. <laughs> honorary Mexican, yeah, de corazón. <laughs> it's a blanket term, and it's an incredibly heterogeneous um, group, right? Even in our clinic, we have uh, folks from Mexico, from Colombia, from El Salvador, from Puerto Rico, from Spain, from Cuba. Am I missing anybody right now? No, I think I got us all this time around. We've had people from Chile, from Argentina. Um, and so you can have, for example, someone from, from uh, Brazil would be considered Latino, Latina, but not Hispanic because Portuguese. Yeah, they speak Portuguese and not Spanish. So you can see the, the, the distinction there. This slide, I think, is really, really important. And what you'll notice, these are Hispanics from coast to coast, the growth of the Hispanic population from, from 2000 to 2010. And the green here is 100% or more growth, yes? And the white is less than 50%. And what you'll notice that is different from, from a lot of the other slides is that there's not much action going on in California, right? There, there, there's been less uh, change because the, the Hispanics, the Latinos, are predominantly already here. Um, Los Angeles uh, is, 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 is in a lot of ways the epicenter, no pun intended. <laughs> Don't get nervous with earthquakes. Um, for for, for these, these changes, right? Um, as they say, California sort of leads the way to where the rest of the country is going. I think, you know, working in LA County, we're an incredibly uh, diverse county. We're gonna show you some, some of those stats later. Just to put things in context, the U.S. has the second largest Hispanic population in the world, right? 53 million, this was, this was back in 2010, 17% of the, of the U.S. population. This number has grown by some accounts already to 60 plus million. And so the census update will tell us what the proportion is. The U.S. is also the third largest Spanish-speaking population in the world. Uh, a few years ago, I, I, I joke about the fact that I was in Spain, in, in Bilbao, at a conference, and when I showed this slide, they were like indignant <laughs> that uh, it's Mexico, Colombia, and then the United States, and the, sorry, and then the United States, and then Spain. So on a global scale, there are more Spanish speakers in the U.S. than anywhere else except for Colombia and for uh, uh, Mexico. There are more Mexicans, you know, in L.A. than any other city in Mexico except for the La Capital, El DF. So um, it helps to put things in perspective of just how uh, important the Hispanic uh, population is in prevalence and incidence within the U.S. When we talk about language, uh, this again is 2010 census data. There's a lot of languages uh, in the United States. There are a lot of languages in L.A. County. But you can see that the lion's share really is Spanish, and these are languages other than English. Um, and so it really, I think, helps to bring a uh, greater perspective and put things into sharper relief, just um, how, how the magnitude of, like I said, that burden and privilege of working with Hispanics, with Latinos is. When all else fails, I say go to Twitter, right? <laughs> um, and, and this is what we want to highlight here is that 
This is looking at those that are Spanish dominant, those that are English dominant, and those that are bilingual. So this is in millions, right? 3.6 uh, millions say, I prefer English. Otros dicen, prefiero español. And I, then there's the either está bien, right? The, the, the bilinguals. And what we're going to talk about is that, you know, bilingual brains, bilingual patients are different from monolingual Spanish speakers, um, even in their physiology, in the way that things get organized in the brain. And so you have to take that into account um, in your assessment strategies. The way that um, psychiatric symptoms manifest um, is different depending on the language in which you might ask about the symptoms. So. Has anyone here heard about this uh, weird science problem? Weird science? It's not just a 1980s movie, even though I remember that, and a song, Weird Science. So behavioral science citations within the United States, about 70% of the evidence base comes from within the United States for behavioral science. For chemistry citations, for other STEM-related disciplines, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics, only about 30% comes from within the US. And perhaps even more, or even weirder, I should say, more weird, um, is that 96% of be behavioral clinical samples come from about 12% of the world's population. What does this mean? It means that our treasured evidence base for uh, empirically supported treatments is based on a really small segment of the population. Right? And so there's a crisis in generalizability. And so as we talk about Latinos in particular, Hispanics, you know, and, and we look at all of the health disparities that are documented across uh, uh, studies and are, are constantly alluded to um, in these types of talks, it's, it's because we have a weird science problem. And this is not just being uh, funny and cute, but weird actually is an acronym, right? And the acronym stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic Samples. So the samples are being pulled from countries and or areas that personify these characteristics. And we have this weird science that serves as the basis for our empirical evidence base. Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And at the NIH, they've decided we need to move from a weird science to a real science, yeah. one that is inclusive of race, even though that's a, a, a socially constructed construct, right? Ethnicity and language, right? These are variables that historically have been really left out of the equation, and we need to move from a weird to a real science, one that generalizes we shouldn't be surprised that there's so many health disparities and that a lot of our treatments and assessment strategies don't work because there's no generalizability. Mm -hmm. We don't include a more diverse sampling um, of, of people in our evidence base. And so there are very real limitations of a colorblind racial ideology, right? I don't know if you all remember in California a few, well, quite a few years ago now, there was a proposition for us not to collect any more data by uh, ethnicity or race because we were going to be colorblind in California and the, they were going to level the playing field. You all remember this? But, uh, but, but there have been these, these moments where people literally want to put their head in the sand and think of this sort of from the ivory tower um, 
that uh, with, if, if we just got rid of, 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 of the differences, if we just treated everybody the same, that we would somehow uh, get to a better place. Um, but there are differences, right? There are differences that, that travel all, along all kinds of dimensions that we need to unpack, socioeconomic differences, differences in discrimination rates, differences in, in all kinds of things. And so individual cultural and linguistic competence models right, that are used to help us address these differences so that we can feel culturally comp often feel like this, right? They're individual mandates. Each person is supposed to be culturally competent. What does that mean? So, so this is a, a, a statement by the Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health. Um, and it's, I'm just going to read it aloud here. Culturally competent programs maintain a set of attitudes, perspectives, behaviors, and policies, both individually and organizationally, that promote positive and effective welcome, positive and effective interactions with diverse cultures. Practicing cultural competence to honor diversity means understanding the core needs of your target audience and designing services and materials to meet those needs strategically. It is important to regularly and honestly evaluate your organizational and operational practices to ensure all voices are heard and reflected. So there's been a development. I think we, if we take a step back and look at a developmental approach to dealing with that weird science problem, cultural competency models were the first iteration of that, right? Gathering content and awareness about another culture. Being sensitive to the other cultures, right? Um, you know, I, I remember similar training and books where it was like, okay, this is how you're going to work with Latinos, right? This is how you're going to work with, with Asians. Again, two incredibly heterogeneous <laughs> groups, right? This is how you're going to work with African Americans. This is how you're going to work with Native Americans. This is how you're going to work with people in the Middle East. This is how you're going to work, right? And I was like, when do they tell me how to work with like non-Hispanic Caucasian white people, right? That was always sort of assumed yeah. as, as the reference group and it was in, in comparison to, yeah. right? So the next uh, iteration from cultural competency was uh, articulated by Tervelin and Murray Garcia in about 1998. This is a real seminal article dealing with cultural humility, right? And cultural humility, uh, got at exactly what you were what you were talking about that this has to be deemed a lifelong learning process and 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 you have to engage in constant critical self-reflection yes that you will never be competent but that you have to accept that it's more of a journey rather than a destination and so the idea of going to a seminar like this and saying hey i'm going to be culturally competent after this seminar because i'm going to spend three hours you know was, was, was sort of dismissed by them and said, hey, you have to be humble and recognize also what you were talking about, that each individual person, family, context, even though I may be Mexican-American, yes, working with Mexican people, I still have to be humble because not all Mexicans are the same, right? I, yo soy alto, I'm tall, soy rubio, light-skinned, you know, I was born on the border. I'm café con leche, like we say, half and half. Yes. Um, and, and yet, even within my own family, right, uh, we look very differently. 
We were raised differently. We had different parents, right? We were raised in different parts, maybe, of Mexico, even on the border. Um, and so recognizing it's a lifelong learning process and that you have to engage in critical self-reflection. Um, the other main tenet of this cultural humility frame was that you have to recognize and challenge power imbalances. Recognize that you know, no one is more expert on, on your patient or your client than they are with regard to their cultural identity and practices. So the idea that I can come in as a mental health provider and be the expert on their cultural orientation and their, that, that othering that happens uh, was sort of really challenged by this cultural humility perspective in saying we have to recognize that there are power imbalances. And then we also have to recognize that it's not just an individual mandate. Yes, that cultural competency is not just about individuals. It is about organizations. It is about fields. So as a psychologist, a neuropsychologist, I have an ethics code. My ethics code in its current incarnation is very individual. It's for the individual clinician, the individual clinician's ethics code. The new ethics code that's in the works for APA um, begins to expand that unit of analysis and lens to say there are ethical principles that need to be adhered to communally, right? That there are different levels of institutional accountability, yes? And that institutions need to be able to partner with the community. So maybe you've heard of like community-based participatory research models, grounding things within the community practice, not sort of parachuting in and parachuting out, but actually standing with and creating together. So the cultural humility heuristic um, to complement uh, the cultural competency models really, I think, move things along. And this is a chart that uh, sort of compares and contrasts cultural competency and cultural humility with regard to goals, values, their individual shortcomings, and their strengths. And it really highlights, I think, a complementarity that we need to be aware of, uh, sort of to paraphrase. We need content and we need to understand the process. Yes, the content being the competency, the humility, the process, and that these two things are constantly interacting and shaping one another. So, you know, yes, knowledge, yes, training, but also introspection, co-learning, and recognizing is never going to be enough. Right? And so, cultural competency, cultural humility. Uh, I think it's reflected in a lot of the statements that we got from around the room that this is beginning to take hold. The, uh, these are a couple of quotes that it, it really is about reestablishing trust in a lot of ways. Yes, um, conceptualizing cultural humility as the ability to maintain an interpersonal stance that is other oriented, not like focusing on you are the other from me, right? But really trying to take the perspective of the other and being humble with the other. Um, staying open to, 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 the, to, to defining what, what, what that means together, yes? Um, in relation to aspects of cultural identity that are the most important for that particular person. Because you may have someone that identifies as a particular cultural or ethnic or racial group, but then there's their particular experience of being a member of that group. 
Reynoso and Vallejo contrasted cultural competency with humility by equating competence with knowledge and humility with understanding. So again, there are different layers of meaning here. I, 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 I talked about content versus process, right? Knowledge versus understanding. And that was really missing, I think, from a lot of cultural competence models. And that's why this the uh, cultural humility heuristic by Turvalon and Murray Garcia really kind of move things along. Cultural humility, this is a nice little um, sort of way to help remember w what this perspective entails. They call it the, the humble model. There, there, it seems like acronyms are just invading us all of the time, but sometimes they can be useful. So cultural humility, the humble model. Be humble about the assumptions you make about knowing the world from your patient's shoes. Understand how your own background and culture can impact your care of patients. Motivate yourself. Motivate yourself to learn more about the patient's background, culture, health beliefs and practices, as well as the unique points of view of their individual families and communities. Begin, this one is so important, begin, begin to incorporate this knowledge and this stance into your care. Lifelong learning, commit to lifelong learning, to know that this will be a process that you need to reconfigure as you go along. And then emphasize respect and negotiate treatment programs. Acknowledge that there are these power differentials and that you need to take an intentional stance, to quote Daniel Dennett, toward, toward your clients, your patients, where you emphasize respect, you emphasize humility. And that will uh, keep you from a lot of the trappings of, of, of the prior iteration of the cultural competence model without that humility piece built in. The latest uh, iteration of this process, right, in dealing with the weird science, I think has been what is now being dubbed structural competency. Has anyone here heard about structural competency? All right, one person. All right. So the fundamental attribution error. This is one of those social psychology findings that they replicate over and over and over again that serves the basis for people getting promoted and moving along because they just replicated it. This is like a sure thing. The correspondence bias. The tendency to draw inferences about a person's unique and enduring dispositions from behaviors that can entirely be explained by the situations in which they occur. So let me give you an example. I was driving here today. Guy cuts me off. What a jerk! Yes, I, I, I make, what's his problem? You don't do that in LA. You didn't even signal, you know, right? And, and, and we, right? To the person, it, it, it's something inside of the person that, 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 that makes them a jerk, right? But what if I told you that his wife was in the back of the car and he, he was driving her to the ER because they're about to have a baby? What if I told you that they were rushing to the airport because his sister was dying and he didn't want to miss the plane to be able to be there with his sister? What if I told you, right? more context that can help you to understand why he cut in front of me. That it wasn't something inside of the person, right? But that there are contextual factors operating upstream that impact the reason why uh, he was cutting in front of me. So there's this shift now 
to structural competency, to looking at the upstream factors, yes, that frame our interactions. Let me give you an example, an example from, from neuropsychology. So I get someone that has a gunshot wound to the head. Yes, and I'm asked to assess this person. What are the consequences of them having had this gunshot wound to the head? How is their cognition going to change? How is their behavior going to change? Right? As a neuropsychologist, I might be tempted to start with when the, gu when the bullet went into the brain. <laughs> yes, and what came after that? Structural competency says, why is it that I might be able to predict with pretty good accuracy the demographics of the person that got shot in the head? based on what zip code they're in, based on what their particular race or ethnicity is, right? based on what their socioeconomic standing is, based on what country they are in, it's more likely that they got shot in the US, say, than in Canada, in the head. Right? Why is it? What are those structural factors upstream that are social determinants of this reality that now I'm being called to, to task on as, as a neuropsychologist? Again, it's an expansion of that unit of analysis to say, are there factors at work in society yes, that are as much a part of my conceptualization the way I understand this problem that I'm facing? And what can I do as, as a clinician to address those factors? Right? So the, enter the role of advocacy into cultural competency, cultural humility at the structural level. level yes. Enter the role of appreciating that organizations are, are, are need to be more accountable because we perpetuate certain systems that have downstream effects that, that serve as the basis for those social determinants to help. I'm probably preaching to the choir because this is an FSP conference and you all are on the front lines of this, right? But so many times we, we, we deal with this as individual providers when there are these broader structural social factors that if we dealt with that, you know, we, we may have less of the problem downstream. Or in making recommendations, you know, physicians adopting this structural competency framework say, how can I recommend someone have a, a healthier diet when they live in a food desert? Yeah. How can I recommend that they go out and get some more exercise when there's very little green space in places for, for in this person's neighborhood to do that? How can I make these wonderful targeted recommendations when there's no access to services? That's the structural competency frame. Yes. Any questions about that? So Metzel and Hansen, uh, Helena was just here with us at UCLA a week or two ago. Um, talk about these five core structural competencies. Number one, recognizing the structures that shape our clinical interactions. Taking a step back, why am I sitting with this woman who is, 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 is in a domestic violence uh, relationship and why am I dealing with all of these sequelae? Can I go back and, and sort of look upstream at what may have brought her here? And what can I do about that to change those upstream factors? Developing an extra clinical language of structure. It means having to adopt a more interdisciplinary frame. Yes. So that we begin to incorporate competencies that maybe we weren't initially trained on. 
when we, when we were in our, in our graduate programs or, 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 or in our clinical programs. Rearticulating cultural presentations, cultural in, in, in quotes, in structural terms. We attribute so many things to individual like culture, right? But some of these are structural factors that, 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 that you can't deal with on an individual level because they shape whole groups of people. Observing and imagining structural intervention. What would it look like to deploy structural interventions in our various clinical contexts? And then developing structural humility. Again, recognizing that this is, this is a journey and that we're just now scratching the surface and beginning to shift toward looking at some of these structural variables. Okay, so these are the APA multicultural guidelines. I, I put them up here because I wanna make sure everyone has a chance to read them if they haven't already. How many of you are familiar with the 2017 APA multicultural guidelines? Just a little bit. You know, it's a long document. I'm not gonna lie to you. Okay, it's like 200 and some odd pages. Um, but, but again, there's an executive summary that goes through the various different guidelines. There are 10 guidelines. Um, in the interest of time, I want to make sure we have plenty of time for discussion. I'm not going to go through them all individually. But what I will highlight is that the difference between the prior set of multicultural guidelines and these multicultural guidelines is that there is more of that cultural humility perspective and structural competency perspective that it is now becoming more and more about accountability of institutions, about the way we train people, about the way that we conceptualize uh, problems in mental health, extending beyond just the individual. So stigma is one of those things that, that I think is a good example. You know, there's a certain amount of stigma. You know, let's talk about like the imposter syndrome. Yes, anybody ever here wrestled with the imposter syndrome? Where, where, where does everyone know what that is? The, the imposter syndrome where you know, you're know you in a situation, I'll use myself as an example, here I am at an academic medical center and I start asking myself, do I really belong here? Are they gonna find out that I don't belong here? I'm a Latino kid from the border and yeah, I have the degree but they're gonna find out that I don't really belong here that you're right, the sort of these self-doubt and, and a sense of being an imposter in, in, in a particular context. And so w it's tempting to localize that within the individual saying, oh, well, Javier is uh, insecure and you know this, that, and the other thing. But, an, but, but, a, but, a, but a, a structural frame would say, but is Javier being treated differently because he's Latino? Because he's so vocal on talking out about issues of social justice? So might there be a reason why it feels like an imposter in an environment that may not share the same values? Right? So it expands the, 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 the dialogue and the unit of analysis to be inclusive of some of more of these structural factors. So something as simple as imposter syndrome, simple, or, or a stigma. Why do people feel stigmatized? Is it something within themselves or is it in response to the way they're being treated by a, a, a broader uh, structural frame. Okay. So there, there are, there are uh, 10 guidelines. Um, again, you can see here, endeavor to be aware of the role of social and physical environment, right? Expanding that unit of analysis and what it means to be multiculturally competent, responsive. Um, let's see, to promote culturally adaptive interventions. There's more focus on uh, resilience 
as opposed to just the pathological models all of the time? I'm, I'm going to skip through, through these here. This is the APA's model, but this is straight out of the publication looking at the model that begins to try to demonstrate the, the different layers that are at work um, out to four different levels in, in any one clinical encounter. So between two individuals, right, the client, the clinician, the student, the educator, the research participant, the researcher, the consultee, the consultant, this sort of bi-directional dynamic happening within one level, and then recognizing that that is happening in a broader level, maybe some sort of physical workspace or a school. And then there's this institutional level, right, and a larger societal context all the way out to different outcomes. And, and we see how our interventions here span all the way out to the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Um, it's an interesting model, and, and I encourage you all to look at the, at the multicultural guidelines um, as this sort of new uh, way of, 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 of trying to, to organize uh, uh, what we do as mental health providers. So I'm going to switch a, a little bit into uh, neuropsychology now. Um, and how does one bring uh, these perspectives of cultural competence, cultural humility, structural, into neuropsychology? Neuropsychology, um, not to be confused with, with what a, a bellhop told me once at a hotel at a conference in Acapulco. He says to me in Spanish, he says, Usted es uno de esos nerdopsicólogos. Are you one of those nerdo psychologists? I kind of looked at him and I was like, yeah, I kind of am, but, but it's actually neuropsychology, right? Uh, neuropsychology is the study of brain uh, behavior relationships, right? Brain behavior relationships. It's an assessment of cognition, assessment of, of, of behavior, of emotional regulation in the context of brain dysfunction. Now that can come about for all kinds of different reasons, right? You could suffer an insult to the brain, like a traumatic brain injury, a stroke, right? You could have seizures. Um, you could have a neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. You can have neurodevelopmental problems, yes. You can uh, be exposed to toxic chemicals. You can be stressed all of the time. <laughs> There's the, the, the brain-gut connection uh, now between the microbiome and the, the impact that, that the flora in your gut has on the way that your brain is working, your nervous system transmitters are working. So as neuropsychologists, we, we, we uh, go beyond just your typical psychodiagnostic evaluation where we're dealing only with psychological constructs, psychopathology, trying to diagnose mental health problems, to acknowledging that there is a physiological or a brain contribution and that these two spheres are really two sides of the same coin. So even something like PTSD has physiological correlates. So the brains of people with PTSD are functioning differently than the brains of someone without PTSD. So this distinction between organic and inorganic syndromes is like, we're, we're moving beyond that, right, to a more integrated, uh, what they would call a materialist, monist perspective. Um, so how do we do that? You know, oops, we uh, review charts, we look at records, right, we interview the patient. Um, we have specific psychometric tests that we deploy that have been demonstrated to have sensitivity to different types of uh, brain disorders, to tap different constructs. We'll talk about what those are. 
We score all those reports and we compare them to normative databases, what's typical within a population. Then we generate reports where we integrate all that information and try to give feedback uh, with targeted recommendations either to the patient and family and or to the uh, referring providers to try to really understand what's going on with the person so that we can find the right type of treatment, right? So that, so that the treatment is more tailored to the actual problems that the person has. I had a case recently, um, in fact, right now, where one of my colleagues uh, sent them to us. They had a um, diagnosis of uh, adjustment disorder. And this was a woman who had had uh, eclampsia. So, so she, she, um, her blood pressure skyrocketed while she was giving birth and she had a, an anoxic injury as, as a result of it. And yet the diagnosis for my colleagues, oh, she's having difficulties with adjustment, even though they noted that she had had this eclampsia. And it's like, how do you integrate those two pieces of information together to have a more targeted treatment plan? So you might work with someone that has this medical crisis where they lost oxygen in their brain differently uh, yeah, they're having difficulty adjusting, not adjusting to the fact that they went through this terrible experience. They probably are having difficulty adjusting, but they're also adjusting because they, they suffered an anoxic brain injury where they didn't get oxygen up into their brain. Right? So the purpose of neuropsychology really, I think, is to help the patient and, and, and to flesh out the how. How do we help the patient? Right? We measure function, function in, in, in cognition, function in mood. We help by, by refining differential diagnoses. We can then make inferences about the brain, what's going to be permanent, what might be amenable to intervention, what can help with rehabilitation. And how does this relate to their everyday life? What's the ecological validity of this, right? And ultimately, it's about making those targeted recommendations that will hopefully have an impact in the person's life. Um, function is critical. And so in order to, to, to be able to get at that and to draw those inferences about brain systems that are disrupted and a person's functioning, um, we bring a whole bunch of different knowledge uh, together in one place um, and we integrate that information. Most neuropsych Assessments will consist of, what, of, of these uh, domains of inquiry, yes, or, or domains of assessment. We look at effort or performance validity, the degree to which the person is engaged with the task. Yes, that's really important because sometimes people just aren't engaged with the task or, or, or they're not really trying the best that they can. And so we have different techniques to try to tease that out. Um, we look, sorry, we look at overall level of intellectual functioning. Uh, what is their intellectual uh, uh, capacity? Does the person have an intellectual disability? Are they within the low average range, the average range, the high average range? Are they off the chart? Or are they really struggling down in the borderline to impaired range? That overall capacity is really important because you can have IQ scores, uh, an IQ score of 70 yeah, for all kinds of different reasons. The score all by itself without the context doesn't really tell you all that much. And so it's important to integrate that information so that we have a, a, a better understanding of the patient. Uh, different domains, we look at attention and processing speed, the speed with which someone can actually 
um, take in information and respond to information, how attentive they are, whether attention wanes. Usually about this point in, in, in a talk, attention starts to wane. I know that as a good neuropsychologist. <laughs> so I promise we'll be taking a break soon. There's a lot of information. Um, language, you know, expressive and receptive language. Is, is that being interrupted? Are there signs that that system is breaking down? Visual spatial abilities, being able to navigate spaces, right, and understand what you see. We think that we see with our eyes, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Um, and so memory, both for verbal and visual information, um, different patterns of memory, and, and, and how that can break down in different individuals. Executive functioning. This is one of those grab-all terms. Everyone thinks they know what it is until you start talking about it, right? And so executive functions are actually a collection of different functions, like being able to plan and, and look ahead and to manage multiple things at the same time, right? To shift dynamically your attention, to have cognitive flexibility between tasks, to be able to inhibit and stop things from happening when you need to. And being able to generate and sort of pick up the gain and the speed on things when you need to as well. Dr. Swat is going to be talking about models of executive functioning a, a little bit later. Motor functions and then mood and personality. Um, these are probably uh, the areas that, that, that you're most familiar with if you're not a, a neuropsychologist. How do you assess mood? How do you assess uh, personality structure, coping mechanisms, etc.? So here at UCLA, we found that neuropsychology really uh, is at the nexus of, of, of a whole lot of things. It, it brings together a lot of information. And so we've found that by providing neuropsychological assessment services in Spanish and in Spanish and English for Latinos and bilinguals, making that more accessible, that the neuropsychology uh, then is able to impact a whole medical system around that. So you introduce a service that historically has not been available and it serves as a type of like disruptive uh, innovation that, that all of a sudden starts drawing attention to things that people didn't notice before. One of those things, for example, is uh, giving, uh, people used to do assessments uh, uh, just in English. If a person spoke English, hey, you know, their English is good enough, they speak English, we can do this, let's rock and roll, and boom. But now, after the introduction of neuropsychology that is bilingual, and, and we demonstrate why that matters, um, people won't do that anymore. Because it's like, oh no, you can't, you can't assess a, a bilingual just in English because you're going to miss X, Y, and Z. Right? And we're going to talk about that and, and give some illustrative examples of that coming up. So our, our model in the cultural and neuropsychology program at UCLA uh, really believes that building resilience in providers is as important as any type of cultural competence um, or uh, linguistic competence or humility. You got to stay in the game. <laughs> I don't have to talk to you all I don't think about burnout. Um, that's that, you know, dealing with those structural barriers that seem insurmountable and, and, and that you're somehow outside of that, well, that's just the way it is. I can't do anything about it, right? Um, the need to build resilience, we give whole uh, workshops on, on, on resilience and resilience building, is really, really important. Innovation of bilingual supervision in an open and inclusive case conference environment. It's, it's very interesting to hear from, from you know, pre-doctoral uh, interns 
postdocs, practicum students, that often we're the first supervisors that they can talk to that actually speak Spanish, even though they're uh, uh, assessing and working with Spanish-speaking individuals. A lot of times we're the first Latino supervisors that they've had at this level. And it makes a difference because it, it, it opens the door all of a sudden to be able to talk about things like the imposter syndrome, to be able to share experiences that maybe are kept sort of in the shadows and with a little bit of shame. Um, and so part of that, 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 again, this is not just about individual competence, but in creating a system, a frame at a more structural level where you have access to people that uh, are underrepresented in medicine, that have the linguistic assets, and, and, and the university taking a stance to, to, to make that available, that's more at a structural level, yes, than, than, than an individual one-on-one. Because a lot of times there aren't those programmatic efforts and people say, oh, well, I had a, a supervisor once I was lucky enough to have. And this shouldn't be about luck. It's about caring for a population that has very specific needs. And we're going to get into the specifics of, of what that is in the second half of, 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 of our talk. Um, multidisciplinary, I think it's important. You know, I, I don't think there are any other neuropsychologists in the room, um, but we have uh, 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 clinical psychologists, we have MFTs, we have social workers, what other disciplines? So it's important to, to have these types of interdisciplinary dialogues where we can see things that cut across the board and we can learn how to work mo most effectively with each other. This patient-centered clinical pathway, you know, patient-centered care, I always like to say, what is more patient-centered than speaking to a person in the language that they prefer? The language that they feel that they can express themselves and be heard in. They might, for example, we have our bilingual patients. Um, they may speak English and be able to get, get along just fine, and it may be good enough, but I say good enough for who? And good enough for what purpose? So if we're really moving toward being more patient-centered, then, then we need to be more responsive to people's cultural and linguistic needs, um, which calls for a reconfiguration and or allocation of resources. Um, in the state of California, uh, Latinos are the minority majority, yes? Or we're actually the, the actual majority, but they still call us a minority population. I don't know why. Um, but in, in 2000 and, what was it, 2016, I think, is when, when the shift happened. They were sort of duking it out at 48% for the longest time, and, and all of a sudden, boom, or 38%, sorry, and Latinos sort of made the jump and, and became the majority in California. In LA County, right, depending on who you ask, um, certainly in different districts, there's a different proportion of, of, of Latinos. Here, we're in a service provider area five, I think, SPA five. We, ha we, we mirror the, the demographics of the United States. So we're about 17% Latino, but in other, service provider areas, you're hitting 80 and above, right? So as a whole within LA County, estimates about 67% or so Latino on the average, but there are pockets where, where, where that proportion is different. And yet the resources are not necessarily configured or allocated to meet the needs of the population that needs to be served. And that again speaks to the structural competency level and, and, the, and the need to be humble and recognize the way things have been in order for us to be competent. 
Um, I'm just going to talk about Procrustes. Um, anybody here familiar with the myth of Procrustes? Okay. So, um, Procrustes, I had to suffer through 16 years of Catholic school. I had nuns, I had Christian brothers, I had Jesuits, okay, um, and, and I had to deal with Greek and Latin, which I'm still recovering from. <laughs> um, but the myth of Procrustes, I think, is, is, is a good um, myth for, for describing what we end up doing a lot of times as healthcare providers when, when cultural and linguistic needs are not tailored to the population to meet the, their actual needs. So the myth of Procrustes, this is Procrustes over here, right? He's an innkeeper, and they have the, the, the proverbial Procrustean bed, right? And so when you get to the inn, and it's time for you to go to bed, if you're too short for the bed, Procrustes stretches you out, right? So you fit just right in the bed. And if you're too tall, he cuts you down to size so that you fit just right in the bed. And so you end up with this grossly disfigured person that's sleeping really comfortably in the bed. Yes? Um, too big, cut you down to size. Too small, stretch you out. Distorted, disfigured outcome. A lot of times we adopt a Procrustean stance or attitude or frame in how we render mental health services. Our beds are our diagnostic categories. Our beds are our normative uh, sort of uh, uh, comparisons, right? Our beds are, well, this is the way the evidence base is, so I got to make you fit within the evidence base, even though we didn't include you when we created the evidence base. And we end up with a very grossly disfigured outcome because we stretch people or we cut them down and, and we make them fit into what we've got. So Abraham Maslow has that, uh, that adage that uh, if all you've got is a hammer in your hand, then everything looks like a nail, right? And we hammer people down. And I, I think in, in, in adopting sort of this tripartite structure of cultural competency, cultural humility, and now structural competency. We have to look at the hammer. We have to look at our tools. We have to look at our beds. In, 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 we say our beds in our hospitals, right? Or you could say our, our couches in our clinics or our chairs in our clinics or, you know, and think about, are we adopting a Procrustean stance? And, and, and what can we do to change that? so that we don't have as disfigured um, an outcome. Right? So with that, up note, <laughs> uplifting note, we'll take a, a little break. And when we get back, um, Dr. Suarez will take it. And we will uh, begin to now look a little bit more practically and pragmatically at how does this actually look in practice and, and, and what can we do. But now you have this sort of theoretical uh, frame. Okay? Any questions or comments anyone wants to make before we take the break? We're going to talk about some practical um, things and questions that we consider during the interview and the assessment. 
And um, we're going to leave some time at the end to, as, you, as we see these cases and we talk about these cases, maybe you can think about some clients that you have had and that kind of like if a light bulb goes on and you think, oh, wow, this patient might have a problem in cognition and maybe, or it's a client that you're seeing now, and maybe we can talk about something that's more tangible. Does that sound good? Mm-hmm. Um, so we leave some time at, at the end. So now I, what I wanted to talk about is in neuropsychology how we arrive at our diagnoses. So we uh, do our diagnosis by exclusion. And I'm going to give you an example. If, some, if, if I have a patient, uh, and we call them patients because they're here in the hospital, patients, clients, same thing that um, comes to us and there's a question about change. There's a change in memory, maybe a change in language, and what usually the patient or the family will report is that they're not able to, to uh, come up with the right word. All of a sudden, uh, and this is kind of normal with age, so don't, don't worry about this, but um, that more often than not, they're telling you, give me the, what's the name of the thing? The thing. Um, and they cannot come up with the right words. So they come to you and they have some, some changes in memory. The patient usually not concerned, but the family or the doctor. So we want to understand um, if there has been a change, which is, right, what, and I couldn't find a more <laughs> culturally appropriate cartoon, but uh, if there has been <laughs> a change in, in in, in cognition, then that's what we're trying to measure. That change from what we call pre-morbid functioning, right? But if there's a change, why do we attribute that change to? So if somebody who's, go ahead. Baseline? Yeah, like their baseline. And the baseline is very, very, that's, I, I tell my patients when we give, uh, when we give um, results, and when I say I, I mean we, Dr. Cajigas is my <laughs> clinical mentor, now we're colleagues, and I became faculty a couple of years ago, but I came here for internship and fellowship, so um, it, it's, we do the same thing. And some things I kind of tweaked, but for the most part, we, we practice very similarly. So we tell the patient, it's like, we need to establish a baseline. The rule, or the ruler, the baseline, and if there's any change from that baseline, that is going um, to, to tell us, right, if there has been a change or not. I, want, I Like a few weeks ago, I was telling one of the, of the fellows, giving, trying to teach her about somebody who was very smart and maybe their language is in the average range. And I told her, I said, so let's pretend that Dr. Kahiga suffered a brain injury and we <laughs> test him. You saw him speak. Right? And all of a sudden, his verbal abilities were in the average range, right? That would be a considerable, probably, decline. And she was like, no, don't say that. She teared up. Just the idea of it makes you want to cry. But that, again, that, that baseline is, is very important. So we want to establish, has there been a change? But what is that change related to, right? So in somebody who's probably like 65, um, we want to make sure that the person first and foremost, probably that is not depressed if there's a sudden change in memory, or not first and foremost, a very important mood, because depression in older adults particularly can look like Alzheimer's. We've had patients that have come to us with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and we test them, 
and they're, average, they're in the average range for memory, but they're just very depressed. We want to make sure that they don't have a deficiency in vitamin B, um, that they're not, they, the kidney disease is not affecting their functioning, that their organs are working well. There's many different reasons why somebody can have a, a change in, in cognition. So part of it is that we want to exclude anything else that could explain that change, right? And, um, and in that part of what, and I drew this, well, not drew it, but I, I put this here. Let me actually see the pointer works. Here is because there's, again, many, many different reasons why somebody could experience change or why somebody will test a certain way on our tests if they don't do so well. And what we want at the end of an assessment is to try and come up. There are things that we're not going to be able to explain, and we say that in our reports. Well, there's this possibility, based on everything that we excluded, we think is Alzheimer's, or we think is the effects of a traumatic brain injury, or somebody has uh, HIV, we think HIV has affected the brain, and that's what we think it is. But in all of this, if you have a person that speaks English and Spanish, if somebody that grew here who's acculturated, then this, this uh, pie chart is not uh, segmented. It doesn't have so many uh, pieces of the pie because um, you don't have to worry about second language. You don't have to worry so much in many cases about poverty, about um, all the other the things that I'm going to talk about later. But the point being is that we want to make sure that what we're capturing on our testing, if there's any change, that, that we exclude. And we keep a pie that's as clean as possible. Does that make sense? Now, how do we determine if there has been a change? Again, just there are some tests that are good at determining people's baselines. Um, but there's also uh, characteristics about a person's development, about what they do for a living. Like if you're here and the kind of work that we do, we start making assumptions that you're probably not here, right? More like here on the upper end of this curve. And everybody's familiar with the bell curve? So. We say when somebody is kind of here, kind of low average, we start worrying a little bit. But when somebody's here, when their tests compared to the general population fall down here, then we determine that to be a change, a meaningful change from pre-morbid abilities. If they're pre-morbid abilities, we determine are kind of here, and their tests kind of fall here then it's kind of something that we watch, but we're not so concerned about, right? So the degree of change is important. Going back to the idea of the, the bed that you talked about is that this bell curve, in most cases, was developed, right? We're measuring somebody here or here based on the general population. But this bell curves, right, were developed using a very homogeneous, in most cases, group of people. Mostly Caucasian, well-educated. So remember that education in this country is compulsory. You get in trouble. I get cards in the mail all the time because my kids miss too much school. Um, 
in other countries it's not the case, right? So what we do is always make sure that we are comparing our patients with patients, with people that with similar backgrounds, with similar upbringing. Um, but this graph I thought was important because it's gonna, it's gonna uh, orient us to the rest of the, of the cases. So again, thinking about that pie, there's things that affect all these aspects of, of, of one's context and cultural affect cognition and the way that we think and ultimately are going to impact how people perform on testing, right? Age is a factor that affects cognition. We're all gonna be slower as we age as a matter of just changes in the brain. So we use norms that always will compare you to other people with your um, same age, right? Gender uh, is another factor that affects some aspects of cognition. And I don't know that we understand very well why some like men do better than women and other on very little things. Um, <laughs> women do better than men on a whole lot of things. On a whole lot of things. <laughs> very little. Yes, very, very little. Um, so, but we want to take that into account, right? Mm -hmm. Education and literacy, and I have this in red because these are some of the aspects of uh, one's experiences and uh, culture in general that most affect testing, right? Mm -hmm. Again, when we talk about race and ethnicity, we are not going to measure um, or compare uh, an African-American or a Hispanic patient with the same norms as a Caucasian because there's many social, political, cultural factors that impact the way in which, uh, in, in which we, we develop and grow up, correct? Um, so culture and acculturation, test wiseness. I think I'm gonna talk about test wiseness just uh, a little bit uh, more in a bit. Uh, bilingualism is uh, one of those things that we in our clinic have to take very careful consideration and I'm going to exemplify that with some case examples later. But Dr. Cajigas talked about executive functioning. And so executive functioning, again, is that ability to switch between things, to put the brakes. So I'm going to give you an example, we were just talking this morning um, and I was going back and forth between English and Spanish. Spanish is my first language, it's the language that I prefer, so whenever I can I go back to Spanish, right? Um, so that practice, actual constant practice, has an effect on the brain. Where bilingual at the structural level, bilinguals at the structural level actually have been found to be different. And what that means is that it seems like we make more connections. It is like a muscle. And you're working that muscle. And so um, we become better at some things. There's the idea that we also are not so great at other things. We have that experience of what they call the tip of the tongue experience. Give me the bilinguals have that experience more than monolinguals. Mm -hmm. Another thing that bilingualism does in your day-to-day -day practice is going back to the idea of executive functioning, putting the brakes on things. So right now I'm speaking in English and I'm engaged just in English and I'm not gonna speak Spanish even though I'm tempted to, it's easier for me 
and I have, which means that I have to put the brakes on the Spanish all of the time. Again, that's another exercise of executive functioning, putting the brakes on one thing to be able to, to function uh, in, uh, in another context or in another ability. So that's important because we have a lot of patients that come to us and they're bilingual. And bilinguals now we're saying they're better at executive functioning, but we're making assumptions about a specific illness based on their ability to do a test of executive functioning good or not. Mm -hmm. So if you have a bilingual person who is average on something you know, on a test, remember about that bell curve, just average, mm -hmm. but they're very, very, very bilingual, I would expect them to be a little bit better than just average. <coughs> If they're just in the low average range, then I'm concerned. Like without saying much, today in the clinic I have a patient um, who is incredibly bilingual, very, 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 very high functioning with some changes in memory and we're suspecting Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to be really worried about this patient having Alzheimer's or another neurodegenerative process if her uh, ability to switch on a task, that we have a task, we ask you to switch between things, it's just in the low average or average range, okay? Because the norms are monolingual, right? Because the more, exactly, the norms are monolingual, correct. So, so I think we already talked about, um, that you, ta you touched a little bit on maybe in, on test wiseness. Um, so all of these things, affects one's cognition in general. Now we're talking about some of the things that in our one-to-one -one encounter, so Dr. Cajigas had that picture of the person sitting there doing some testing. That um, is what we do. We sit in a room that seems very um, <coughs> kind of bland. Uh, and we There's a little table and we sit there and have some tests. A lot of people um, in other cultures like here, kids start getting tested with SATs and with tests. No, since they're little. What SATs? Since they're like very, very little. My kids just took tests in the last uh, few weeks. When I came um, to America as a teenager, I had never taken a standardized test before. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I cannot. It's the most anxiety-provoking experience ever. Mm -hmm. So these things now you start thinking about in the one-to-one -one interaction with the patient. I had a patient the other day from, um, from Chile, and he had come just not that long ago, and we did testing. There was a question about ADHD. He was so mad at us at the end of the day when we told him he didn't do so good. Why would I do good? You had me in that room, and it was like a prison. There were four walls. It was hot, two, small, two people. But he was so mad at the room. Some people are used to that, and so that's going to impact um, their ability to engage in the test, to give me valid data, because the idea, again, is to reduce the, the amount of cuts in that pie to be able to, to come up with, with something that's real, right, with a change that's real. Um, another thing is, for example, you, Dr. Kegat gave this example yesterday in a class that he's, he was teaching. I was a had gone through internship and I was doing fellowship and I still had not seen a patient that had um, zero years of education. Mm -hmm. And I did testing. As a fellow, you kind of do the testing and you're able to see, oh, there's something not okay with this person. She has difficulties in executive functioning or memory or processing speed. 
And I was really, really worried about this patient. I got really concerned about the doctors didn't tell us she was disimpaired, something's going on with her, it's not on their radar. I think she needs an MRI, and she goes, okay, okay, slow down. Uh, this patient had zero years of education. Tell me how she was holding the pen, right? Something that we take for granted, just as simple. How was she holding the pen? Um, how was her approach to drawing? And I started thinking, oh, yeah, that's true. Her pencil grip was not very natural. She didn't hold the pen like us. And um, we have this misconception that low education or lack thereof affects people's verbal abilities, but your ability to draw a cube, draw a figure, is, is something that you learn in school. So you have to, to start thinking about all of these things. And there's in, in neuropsychology, we do test um, where we ask people to uh, do abstract drawings with cubes, draw figures, and we make inferences about brain dysfunction or brain lesions based on those. So with our low education, patients with low education, we have to be very careful. So again, it's now you, you start thinking about the one-on-one, the, -on -one, the patient, and what are some of those aspects of their development, of their culture that might impact test um, performance. Um, we already talked about different cutoff scores and diagnosis. That was the bell curve, so I'm going to skip that. So now, um, because I talked about the importance of education in, in um, some of the things that we do in when we talk to patients in our interviews, um, is ask them how much education do they have. Where did that education take place? A lot of our patients, for example, come from rural communities in our countries. Um, so we ask, the, we ask very specific questions to get at their quality of their education. We usually, speaking about the baseline, we usually presume that if somebody has made it through the traveling, get, you know, putting it all together to get here, they get here and they have to set up housing and their, um, I think about like um, their phone lines and power lines, all of that takes a lot of know-how and a lot of cognitive abilities. So we presume that if somebody has made it already here and has gone through the immigration process that there's somebody who's, who's capable, who's very capable. So we want to make sure that we don't confuse lack of education with ability because they're two separate things. So, But we do want to get a sense of people's um, level of education to make inferences, again, about how they're doing. We want to ask about whether um, they've gotten a GED or diploma. Are there disruptions, special education, learning disabilities, the quality of education? Again, if they were in a small town where they're all in the same room, if we're first grade, second grade, third grade, all bunched up in the same room, how much attention was paid to each child? Um, there's uh, studies, for example, that in African Americans, the quality of the education is a better <coughs> indicator than just the normal years of education for our test. It's a better uh, predictor of how well somebody does or not. Again, we don't want to penalize somebody for having gotten qu bad quality of education and give them a diagnosis that is going to follow them and that they really don't have uh, a certain illness. We want to know about um, discrimination and segregation. And I had a patient recently, and patient examples to me are, are very powerful. So I will, I will, I have some specific examples, but I have a, I had a patient recently 
who was in the early 50s, and she was developing Alzheimer's disease. Very, very rare. So it's very hard to diagnose and is often mistaken with anxiety or depression. And this patient came to me very anxious, very anxious, but one of the, um, her anxiety was around the current sociopolitical uh, situation. She came from a mixed family. She was documented, she worked, um, but a lot of her family were not. And she was very, very stressed out about that, very anxious. So um, I, the test ended up showing that she did have Alzheimer's, and, um, but I could have very easily mistaken the current sociopolitical um, environment to have affected her, her mood and her anxiety. Again, we want to ask about native language and the language of usage now. How uh, much do you interact in English and Spanish? That's very important. Um, okay, so I know that Dr. Pegas already showed many, many um, slides with, with numbers, but I think it's very important to talk about the numbers of people who speak uh, Spanish in LA. And you can see in LA County, because this is the area that we serve, 50% of people speak Spanish. Um, in LA County, more people speak Spanish than in the country of Uruguay. That's huge. So this is the population that we're serving. And just to give you an idea, not to say poor me, poor me, but the idea is that we want to educate people about neuropsychology or poor us, poor us, is that we are only two Spanish-speaking neuropsychologists in the greater LA area that take insurance for a lot of procedures that require neuropsychological testing. Mm -hmm. um, so this is why we're interested in spreading the, the, the knowledge and the wealth, and we want to develop um, a workforce of Spanish speakers. We are providers of neuropsychology. We have the clinic. We're training students. But let's say when we're going to make recommendations, then we struggle talking about mm -hmm. the, the, the structural barriers to serving this population. Last night, I found a clinic that actually serves um, Spanish speakers. We have groups. Last night, and we've been in LA for how long, and we're always looking for services, I came across um, a clinic that serves Spanish speakers on a sliding scale. They have groups, and I texted everybody in the clinic, and I was so excited. and. And so we struggle with the same with the same issues. So we're going to concentrate a little bit again on bilingualism because it's important. It represents a lot of us in this room, a lot of your patients, and we cannot stress enough how bilingualism plays a huge role in cognition and uh, diagnosing somebody with the wrong illness or not diagnosing somebody with the with the correct illness. So as far as bilingualism, we want to always ask somebody about the about our patients about age of acquisition. The earlier uh, somebody learns uh, Spanish, um, the more probably differences there are in the brain structurally. So we want to worry about that. Um, I think one thing that we see, for example, in our clinic, I don't see peds. You see a little bit more peds. Uh, we're uh, lifespan neuropsychologists. You're even more lifespan than I am. But um, but you have seen cases where the kids come with a diagnosis only tested in English, 
come with a diagnosis of a learning disorder, a language disorder, but they were only tested in English. They were put in special classes, and, um, and then they come to us and we test them in English and in Spanish, and there's no uh, disorder. Uh, bilingual kids usually, so the misconception is that bilingual kids are um, delayed in language, so they can delay in language. I, I have a lot of uh, parents or friends that think that that's the case. But what happens is that they're learning, learning two languages at once, and when you put both languages together, they usually have the same amount of words that they use. Um, and so it seems when you're looking at, looking at these children with a monolingual lens that they're behind, right, in English only, but they usually surpass their, their peers by about seven, eight years of age. They're like lagging, 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 and then they take off. Um, and they've been found to have better executive functioning abilities and so on and so forth. Is there anything that you want to add about that? Yeah, I, I think, patients? you know, um, we've had kids that come with, with like serious language disorders diagnosed, like an expressive and a receptive language disorder. And then we test them in a bilingual lens and it's like, well, maybe they have that in English, but they don't have it in Spanish, so how can it be an expressive receptive language disorder, right? Maybe they're just in English learner status right now. Um, or, or normative comparisons, the trajectories, like Dr. Swat has said, of development for bilingual children are different than those of monolingual children. It's not better or worse, it's just different. Um, and if you, again, look out far enough the, the bilingual kids, if you think of it like this, you've got two lines, right? Here are the bilingual kids and here are the monolingual kids. The monolingual kids look like they're doing better, except over time, they, they, there's a moment where they cross and then this happens, right? So it depends on at what point in development you make that normative comparison and within which cognitive domain because it's not just linguistically. There is fairly robust evidence that by about four years of age, bilingual children perform much better on a whole series of executive functioning mm -hmm. tests. And that, that difference persists well into older age, such that when you're an older adult and, and, and you have something, if you're going to get Alzheimer's, you're going to get it, whether you're bilingual or monolingual, right? Mm -hmm. But a bilingual brain can resist much more insult from the disease than a monolingual brain. So the diagnosis comes about four to six years later. Mm -hmm. So it's protective. So th there's, this is the new uh, neuroscience, the cultural neuroscience that is demonstrating that uh, uh, bilingual brains are different, right? And in some cases more robust, there are advantages. In other cases, there are liabilities, like tip of the tongue. Como se dice? What are you? Oh, right, because... There's no research to, that's gonna that, or, that can tell us yet why the tip of the tongue experience experience exists except that constant competition between one language or the other one? Have you seen research about structurally or functionally what, it's more about what happens as a result of that, which is where the advantage comes, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the constant trying to engage the systems of, of the brain. Right. There's something in the brain um, that's called why matter? And I like to think of it as like the avenues that connect parts of the brain with the other one, those structures of the brain are more robust, they're stronger, thicker in people who are bilingual. Mm -hmm. Again, it's that constant engagement of that, um, that system of the brain that puts the brake mm -hmm. and kind of 
interferes and puts the stop. The, 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 so that's what that's where the benefit comes from. That's where the benefit comes from. So it's almost like it's the two side of the coins is that. I don't know that we know about why the tip of the tongue. There's like different theories. My mm -hmm. dissertation was on that. We could talk about that forever. <laughs> but, but we don't know it definitively. Yeah, yeah, we don't know it definitively. But we do know, I think, we do know that the executive functioning ability comes from that constant interaction in those abilities that make those systems better. And that we're able to see with imaging, actually. And we know when people suffer brain injuries, mm. um, because they'll be talking, de repente empiezan a hablar en español, but then the English comes in, y luego el español, and they go back in, de uno para otro. And That's called pathological switching. Pathological code, 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 code switching, right? So I'm monitoring right now. I know I'm in an English-only context. And kids can do this when they're really little. Yeah. They, they don't go to abuelita and talk to, her, to grandma and talk to her in English. They only, they know who... So, so there's that monitoring aspect. That's executive functioning. Selection, monitoring, switching, inhibiting in one context, accelerating in another context. All of this happens through a process of socialization. And to your point about language, the, the context is really important. And so is the, the limbic uh, or emotional uh, arousal. So I can't get mad in English. If I want to calm myself down, I start speaking English right, right. because if I know that if I go into Spanish, all bets are off, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, so you learn to you learn to say, okay, I'm getting upset right now, so I'm going to go to English, and that's going to that's going to like de-escalate because one language, usually the mother tongue, the first one is always more limbic, more more emotional than the other. Can you think about how this might interact with someone that has depression yeah. or schizophrenia? Or bipolar disorder, or, have a case or, or pick your pick your pick your disorder. Mm -hmm. This is another factor that can play out differently in someone who's bilingual, because bilinguals can get all of these disorders just the way monolinguals right. can. But the phenotype, the way it manifests, is different. Sorry, I'll stop. So context, context <laughs> is very important, right? Mm -hmm. And because I'm a primarily Spanish speaker, my language choice, the language that I dream in, that I curse in, that I <laughs> but I came here when I was 13, right? But I did all of my higher education in English. If you asked me to give this talk in Spanish, I would struggle. Even though I'm having to choose my words correctly, I'm having to monitor my accent, it's stressful, my imposter syndrome is worse than ever. But if you ask me to give this talk in Spanish, I would struggle because of the context. The terms are different, so language is very context specific. I'm going to just tell you really quickly about the tip of the tongue. The idea that with concrete words, a concrete word is something that has, right, the representation English and Spanish is the same. This is a telephone, this is a phone. That, because in your brain you have the representation for both for the same object in two languages, those words are more difficult. <coughs> if it's an abstract word where um, it's an emotion, something that is more abstract, the competition is not as significant. That's why when you're going to name something that's more uh, concrete, it's more difficult. That it makes sense, and usually what happens is that it's almost like for some people, speaking a second language <coughs> is a... Um, it's a status symbol, right? Oh, my kid goes to a bilingual school and then they get 
fourth, they get a tutor, and, and it's like, oh, it's so hip to have kids who go to immersion schools, right? Um, it is. <laughs> Some people see it that way. My kids go to uh, bilingual schools for reasons that are not tied to being <laughs> hip or not, but, but I see it. Then there's the kids who, and it, it actually depends also on generations, right? Um, but for the kids that have whose parents feel already disenfranchised, stigmatized, right? It makes sense that they don't want the same for their children, or they think that if they kids um, don't speak English well, that they're gonna receive the same treatment as them. And so, especially right now in the current um, climate that we're living in, it would, I think that it, it, I wish we could educate the parents and say, no, that's not the case, this is good for them. Um, uh, it's good for their brains. There's so many benefits. We go and give talks in the community about the benefits of bilingualism. But from a, if I put myself in the parents' shoes, it would make perfect sense that I want to make sure my kids don't speak English with an accent, that they learn it, that um, you know that they don't receive the same treatment that they did. I just say that, that that's that's one of those structural factors, right? Mm -hmm. That shapes the way that someone develops language or doesn't. Um, and, and I think you're, you're talking about, like Dr. Swetis said, an interaction between bilingualism and SES um, in light of those structural pressures. You know, the, 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 there's a lot of harm avoidance. And there's a whole, it's interesting, when you look at Latinos across the lifespan right now, there's a whole generation of folks that were like, they, they self-identify as Hispanic or Latino, but they don't speak a word of Spanish because their parents were like, you're not. I want you to be an American. I want your English. <coughs> and then there's a younger generation of people that are that are that are switching back and forth. There's the abuelita factor, the grandma factor, or or the nanny factor, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so there's different kinds, and and that speaks again to the heterogeneity, and the pluralism that exists within the group. You can't lump everything. It really matters what you do, right? The cultural practice of how have you used your language and all the factors that, that, that form the complexity of that. Uh, like, it's the same case for Asian Americans. You mm -hmm. see a lot of Korean Americans uh, who, in the generation, maybe 30, 20 years ago, they wanted their kids to only speak English. And there was so much of loss of interaction between kids and parents. That also happened to Asian Americans some 40, 30 years ago, right? So. I'm skipping three cases, but we'll see. We'll, we'll jump around. I'm worried about time. But this is good because now we're like in the part where, okay, I think there's tangibles here, and this mm -hmm. is good. This is good. Um, we saw a case. I saw a patient. Um, it was a 50-year-old bilingual woman from Central America with 16 years of education. And she was, repeat for, uh, she was referred for a repeat evaluation due to progressive memory decline. She previously underwent a neuropsych assessment that was deemed invalid due to insufficient effort. She was previously diagnosed with depression. Both her mood and her cognition continued to decline. That's how the patient came to us. And so the patient came to us, and um, she had been recently admitted in the inpatient unit for su for suicide for suicidality. And she was seen by an English-speaking neuropsychologist before, and we're skipping a whole lot of slides, but that's okay. So let's let's backtrack a little bit. In the previous evaluation, um, this is what they found. It was a diagnosis in English. So they found that she felt, uh, Dr. Cajigas talked about 
um, performance validity test. In our test, we have some uh, test to ascertain if somebody is really meaningfully engaged with the test or not. The test seems hard, but they're not hard. Even people with Alzheimer's pass the test. People with traumatic, traumatic brain injuries pass the test. So we give those tests to some people. So she was tested in English. The interview went on in English. And um, the, the results of the evaluation indicated marked suboptimal effort on three out of three objective and embedded efforts of measure, of, of embedded effort measures. She endorsed severe symptoms of both depression and anxiety on self-report measures. And um, she was given a diagnosis of depression, okay? So she, um, she was given a, a diagnosis of depression. She came to the assessment. Now she was routed to us because, again, the clinic is open. People do not want to touch a bilingual patient with a 10-foot pole. They won't, don't go near the patient. So now she comes to us. The clinic is open and she comes to us. So she starts telling me her story. And it's with the husband only. We're speaking only in English. And um, in the back of my mind, which is some of the things I was going to talk about, was, okay, she said she was a student in Guatemala when she was about this age. That's when the war erupted in Guatemala. I need to talk to her about this without the husband here. There's something going on that she's not telling me. She didn't tell the previous person. She has a diagnosis of depression. Her depression is getting worse. She's in the uh, partial program for depression and nothing is working. So then I, I um, kicked the husband out of the room. Um, <laughs> and we stayed with her and we started engaging her a little bit in Spanish, like kind of trying to modulate the English and the Spanish. And whenever I would kind of probe her in Spanish, she would switch to English and not look at me. So we started talking little by little. To make a long story short, I discovered that um, I started asking her about her history, the Civil War in Guatemala at the time. Um, and again, she started kind of breaking down and talking but she would, when it got too difficult, she would revert back to English. But I, I stayed with her in Spanish. And she was gang raped at a protest in Guatemala in her university. And she never told anybody about this. Gang raped during a protest. She hid in a room during a protest at the university. If you all know or don't know, universities are like hubs in Latin America for uh, for uh, protests and, and political uprisings. So she, um, she was gang raped, and she never told anybody about this. And we um, talked to her about the importance of speaking in Spanish. We, we, we did a lot of psychoeducation about um, her first language, right, is, I think you, you mentioned this before, is the limbic language. The limbic system in the brain is in charge of emotions, processing emotions, is very tightly connected to where memories are formed in the brain and the memories and the attachment to, to um, emotion and memories is very important. So we talked about uh, And the amygdala, the yeah. fear. Uh, well, yeah, the limbic system. So we talked about the importance of her doing therapy in Spanish. Um, and she actually agreed that she was going to do therapy in Spanish. We changed her diagnosis to PTSD mm -hmm. as opposed to depression. Mm -hmm. And when we asked her, she met criteria, full criteria for PTSD with some dissociative features. Mm -hmm. 
So what they were reporting to be memory problems were not true memory problems. This woman spent a lot of her days dissociating, so she wasn't getting the information in and remembering anything that was to be remembered because she wasn't she was dissociated from her PTSD. But I we do believe that it's very important that you engage someone in their first language. It happens to I to us time and time again where patients come here. <coughs> And just the mere fact of asking them a question in Spanish, and they just let it all out. The trauma histories from like war-related histories in El Salvador, um, in Colombia, I had that experience very recently uh, of somebody who never spoke to anybody about the things that happened to, to her in Colombia. It happens time and time again. You can encounter resistance, right? Like she did. She would look away. She would revert back to Spanish. Um, Dr. Cajigas talks about this in, in a class that he gives about how psychotic symptoms present differently in different languages. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to give us. Yeah. So I think a, a good heuristic or hard and fast rule would be if you want to elicit symptoms, right, and 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 make sure that you're getting the symptoms that you need. Go for the L1, the first language. If you want to ground someone more cognitively and, and, and move away from the emotive and, and really engage the cognitive structures, go to the L2. Because, so for example, with, with people that have uh, primary psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, the languages uh, uh, of, of the voices, the auditory hallucinations, bilinguals rarely hear hallucinations in both languages. Most of the time, it's in the L1. Wow. Yes, they're like, oh, the, 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 if you ask, most of the time it's the L1. So if you want to elicit the positive symptoms, and go for the L1, the limbic language, the, the more emotional language, the, the, the deeper language within the brain, if you will. But if you want to challenge cognitive distortions, if you want to ground the person more in reality and away from their psychotic symptoms, the literature would say engage them in the L2. And so all of a sudden you have a tool with a bilingual patient that you don't have with a monolingual patient, right? I made the mistake, I always joke, I made the mistake of t telling my wife about this. <laughs> because now she monitors what language I'm speaking to her in. And you know, if all of a sudden I switch to English, I, I won't even notice, but she'll notice, and she'll be like, "No, no, no, vente, mijito, que quiero, vamos a hablar un poquito más las emociones. We're going to talk a little bit more emotionally." And she can tell when I'm moving away emotionally because I switched to English. And and so it's 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 something that is that is um, borne out in the literature more in case studies and case examples, but that hasn't been systematically studied scientifically with a scientific method per se. If you have a structured interview, so like the, the SCID, the structured clinical interview for diagnostic, diagnostics, is that what it is, SCID? Um, if, you, if you go through the structured interview in Spanish, and you know it has decision trees and gets you to a, to a diagnostic differential, and then you go through the same interview again in English with the same person, or if you go English first and then Spanish, you may get to two very different uh, destinations in terms of the diagnosis. Because the language that you're eliciting the symptoms in makes a difference. And, and taking it back to, to uh, cognition, there's uh, data that suggests that people's uh, match in 
in, in race and ethnicity, right? It's going to impact the uh, clinical test relationship. scores. Yeah. And, and can you imagine, like you're telling somebody, okay, tell me as many words as you can think of that begin with the letter F. And you're going to draw inferences about brain behavior relationships and whether or not they have mm -hmm. um, they have some cognitive problems and even who's testing you makes a difference and something that seems to be so objective right some paper and pencil test I could imagine that in therapy when you're asking such personal questions is even more important mm -hmm. right yes. we have a lot of patients that come to us for our cognitive assessment for transplant mm -hmm. Um, for organ transplant. They need a new heart, they need a new liver, they need um, mm -hmm. uh, new lungs, and then time and time again, we see medical records, the patient is a poor historian, or which in and of itself is not gonna preclude you from getting a heart transplant, right. but if you're non-compliant and you're gonna get a heart transplant, then that's a big problem because that means life and death, right? Exactly. So we go to the unit and we talk to the patient and we say, look, I read on the medical records, can you explain this to me? And then they tell you in Spanish and they tell you the story how oh, maybe they organized the pills a certain way and they miss one dose and maybe the wife wasn't there to remember but the wife is the one that did everything for the husband throughout the life. Or and all then, the instructions are written in English. Or all the instructions, <laughs> and that's like, yeah, another tangible ex example. And so um, for us, those very subtle um, uh, things have real life and, and death mm -hmm. implications in, in some cases. I think the important thing about today and talking today again is arming you with some tools, right, mm -hmm. that you can take back mm -hmm. and say, I'm not this is not all just me, I'm not making it up. There's, um, there's evidence, like you said, evidence-based um, information out there to, to support the fact that we need to do, go the extra mile. Something that we end up doing, like you mentioned, with the stigma is we do a lot of psychoeducation even before we start interviewing somebody. And yes, it takes a little bit of time, but in the long run, it's going to pay off because we, the idea of somebody coming from a cognitive assi assessment, yo no estoy loco, right. and we're like, no. Usted es un psicoloco? Yeah. That's my favorite. <laughs> so we give them a lot of psychoeducation. We talk about no, and, and there's so much stigma around that. We yeah. talk mm -hmm. about the diagnosis. Oh, the patient, case in point, my patient and today refused to be tested in English. Doesn't want to be tested in English. Yeah. Um, in Spanish, I'm sorry, in Spanish, because they, they think of themselves as somebody who speaks very good English. Why am I going to be tested in, in, uh, in Spanish? So we do a lot of psychoeducation. We basically walk them through, the, through, the, through our presentation and we talk, this is what the research shows us. We definitely don't want to give you a diagnosis that's wrong. We don't want to draw the conclusion that you have Alzheimer's if you don't. So there's a lot of um, effort that needs to go in in the in the front end to be able to get the results that we want in the back end. And in, in our experience, when you offer the services in a way that is linguistically and culturally welcoming, mm -hmm. valid and meaningful, a lot of the stigma disappears. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the stigma is I don't want to be treated in, 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 in a subpar way by a health system that is not configured and set up or, 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 or a frame of, 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 of diagnosis is not for me. 
but when, like, the, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> That's been like our mantra because all of a sudden we offer these services and here they come. I want to make sure that we at least cover how, um, so, so yes, we ask the questions about bilingualism and we talk about all these things uh, that are important factors that affect cognition and how bilingualism um, affects the brain. So it's very important that we, to the best, the, um, of our abilities that we quantify or that, that we assess people and determine the, the language in which they're, we're going to test them. So in some ways, we're just not asking somebody, oh, when did you learn English and when did you know Spanish and what language do you dream in? But we want to make sure that we, in our practices, um, do things as empirically guided as we can. So I had a lot of uh, examples, but I think I'm going to show you just an example of how this plays in real life, because this example gives us an idea of how um, structural barriers play into diagnosis and language abilities and how they play into diagnosis. So when we test our bilingual patients, we want to think about proficiency, which is the ability to use a language for a variety of purposes, speaking, listening, reading, and writing. That's a little bit harder to assess, to try. It's not, um, I don't think we have our finger exactly on how to assess proficiency, but we try to get a proficiency with the interview. Fluency is someone's ability to convey a message with fluidity, and that's something that we can measure. It's more tangible. We ask people to give us um, as many words as you can think of that start with certain letters. We have norms for those and we compare English and Spanish. Um, and then that gives us an indication or can we go all way in Spanish? Do we have to do English and Spanish or can, do, should we stick with, stay with English? But another thing that we do is we have um, a test um, I'm going to tell you about the test in a second. But this is um, a patient that came to us, and it said that on the medical records, it said that this patient was from Spain. And I put Spain there because the patient spoke Spanish, but she wasn't from Spain. She was from South America. But for some reason, they thought um, <laughs> she speaks Spanish, she's from Spain. Um, so she was uh, referred to us. Uh, for neuropsychological testing to help formulating, um, with formulating a diagnosis of dementia and capacity for decision-making abilities. So they actually were going to take her ability to make her own decisions based on this testing. So then the patient came to us and she, we start talking and she tells me that, um, she tells me that they actually had already tested her two weeks prior and that they had tested her in English. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Like, what do you mean? And she's like, yeah, I went to this building. The doctor's name was this. They gave me this test. And I'm thinking, okay, the patient speaks uh, very good Spanish. She has a very thick accent, which tells me she probably needs to be tested in Spanish. But she also um, told me when she was tested, who tested her, and some of the tests that they gave her, which probably gives me an indication that she doesn't have a lot of memory problems, Good right? Episodic memory. Um, that she can remember this very, um, like an episode in her life that happened two weeks prior. That's pretty good, right? 
So then I got up and I called the, the doctor. I have a good relationship with the neurologist who sent her to us. And I said, you know, this just happened. And she's like, oh, wait, let me send you the report. And I look at the report. They had already, they had it in the medical records. And sure enough, they had tested her in English. And they had given her diagnosis of Alzheimer's. <laughs> and so I said, you know what? I can no longer do this assessment because the insurance is not going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I cannot put her through this. If I do the assessment, I cannot not bill. That's insurance fraud. But I also, um, and if I do it, then she's going to be stuck with the bill. The most I can do is spend some time trying to assess um, her level of English fluency and Spanish fluency and get at her proficiency, which is what we try to do with this test that we use. So I wanted to orient everybody to give you an indication that we use this test. We have a test that's called the verbal, the bilingual verbal abilities test. And the test, uh, we give somebody um, a test in, in English. So we ask this person, tell me the names of these words in English. And then we ask them uh, to give us synonyms, antonyms, and then um, some verbal analogies, all in English. And then we um, assess them, that the, the words that they miss, the points that they miss, we ask of them in Spanish. And it gives us an indication of, if we were to test this person only in English, where would she fall, right? Mm -hmm. So remember that, that bell curve? So if we compared her to other people with her um, level of education, she would have been impaired. If we compared her with other people with her age, she would have been average, but ooh, right on the cusp. Just right there on the cusp of low average. And this was somebody that had a bachelor's degree. Um, when we give her the ability to have access to both languages, then she goes low average for people with her education. I'm not and then average for people her age, her, sorry, yeah, people her age. So um, she had a very significant vascular risk factor, so I'm not saying that cognitively she was great, but we also had the advantage of giving her this test, phonemic fluency, which, which assesses um, people's part of executive functioning. And this test of semantic fluency in animals is a very sensitive test to pick up damage in people that have Alzheimer's disease. So you see, they did it phonemic fluency FAS impaired, semantic fluency very sensitive to Alzheimer's disease, and she was low average in somebody that we would expect to be average to high average. When we test her in, um, in, Spanish. in Spanish, her um, her fluency is low average, and her animales is average, which to me, this, so I don't have enough information to, to say this person has Alzheimer's or no, not, doesn't have Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. but the conclusions that they drew on her test when they tested her just in, in English, they decided that she had memory problems only in English and that her semantic fluency, which is a test, again, sensitive to Alzheimer's pathology, was low average. And so they said that she had Alzheimer's and gave her a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Dr. Suarez cures Alzheimer's disease all the time. <laughs> she really does. People come with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and then they leave without one. Yeah. So and I, the patients love her for it. So I could not assess this patient, the one that I told you about, but I wrote to, um, to the doctor. 
I wrote this note to the doctor. The kicker for me <laughs> was that this patient was tested in English and um, when she should have been tested in Spanish. She actually at the university was a, a student of Spanish literature and her uh, teacher, her professor was Jorge Luis Borges, one of the most prominent mm -hmm. La Latin American uh, writers mm -hmm. of all time. And she was given a diagnosis. Isn't that ironic? I'm going to end with my favorite slide of the, of the talk. Um, when we assess our bilingual patients, we always want to evaluate level of proficiency versus fluency. We don't want to leave it up to chance. What happens is that people get diagnosed with, uh, with having Alzheimer's where they don't. The other side of the coin is that people get tested in English and then they find that they have some deficits, but the neuropsychologist will say, oh, you know what? This person does have some impairment, but it might be all due to language. They've already charged the insurance. They've already talked to the family. And then when they come to us and we test them, then I had a patient where by the time she laid up, le left our office, we filed a report with the APS mm -hmm. for negligence. She was driving. Um, she was leaving by herself, and we come to find out she was burning things. She wasn't being able to take. She wasn't able to take care of herself because the neuropsychologist tested her in English and said, "Oh, sorry, I don't know for sure. There's something going on, but I don't know for sure." Could be ESL. It could be ESL. Um, that language of, of communication uh, can access relevant information, like we talked about. I like to say that testing somebody um, in just one language is like a like a cardiologist having an, an ultrasound of, of the heart or an EKG that works only for one side of the heart but not for the other one. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we take for granted. But I think that no other discipline other than psychology, neuropsychology, mental health um, providers in general would do that. Um, and, and yes, it's a matter of resources. We're doing the best that we can. It's not meant to be like, don't do that. You know, we're doing the best that we can, but it's something that we need to consider more seriously. Um, thank you very much for your attention and participation. Thank you.